Are you troubled by strange voices in your ears? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement, attic, or car? Have you or your family actually listened to a spooky podcast? If the answer is yes, don't wait another minute. Just pick up the phone and listen to the professionals. Ghostcasters! Our courteous and efficient submitters are on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural podcast listening needs as we count down to the latest release of the Ghostbuster series, Ghostbusters Afterlife 2021. We are ready to believe, believe you. I remember Revelations. And I looked as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. Judgment Day. Raise a call. I'm calling about what happened in New York. There hasn't been a ghost sighting in 30 years. What is happening here? Her grandfather was a Ghostbuster. Something was coming and he knew it. I think we opened the gates of hell. Hey, have you missed us? Who are you going to call? Podcasters! Um, assemble? Probably? Hi, this is Justin Aki, graphic designer at One Half Significant Nautico. Hello, this is Stephen White, co-host of Super Mega Crash Brothers Turbo and Cinema Salsa. This is Eric Slater from Epic Fails of History, Too Young for This Trek, and Comic Zombie. Hey everyone, Rob here, your friendly neighborhood Ghostbuster, host of End Sometimes Rob on the geek to geek Network, and member and co-founder of the North Star Ghostbusters here in Minnesota. Hello crew, this is the Questing Truck with the Questing on the Road podcast. And today we've just watched the uh, new Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife. And we are here to talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ghostbusters Afterlife. It is here, it is finally here, and it is exactly the movie that I thought it was going to be. Both good and bad. Caution! Spoilers ahead! Spoiler alert. So this season, we talked about the original classic from 1984, its vastly inferior sequel, and the controversial reboot from 2016. We even covered the surprisingly great game from 2009, the nostalgia of the animated series, and the original The Ghostbusters live-action series from the 70s that actually had nothing to do with the real Ghostbusters, um, you know, the one with the gorilla. And now we've finally arrived at a movie that many of us thought we'd never get. 2021's Ghostbusters Afterlife. And I gotta say, just like with No Time to Die, this one was worth the wait. And as a special guest today, I'm actually joined by my nephew, uh, Christopher. Uh. This is a very unique episode. I'm recording from inside the actual Ecto-1 used in Ghostbusters. Just ignore the sirens. There's the ones on the roof. Yeah, I'm leaving them on for character. Actually, I'm kidding. That was a little joke for Corey. Well, I guess first impressions, uh, what did you think of the movie? So my fiance and I saw this one with the kids, and I think we 
all really had a good time with it. As a moderate fan of Ghostbusters, I've always been open to the idea of seeing the original cast reunite for a third entry. But after many years of the classic will-they-or-won't-they routine, plus the passing of Harold Ramis, I'd accepted the fact that that would probably never happen, and I was okay with that. But then the announcement for Ghostbusters Afterlife came along, boasting the return of the original team, directed by the son of the original director. I was skeptical, but was willing to wait and see. I think for the kids, they enjoyed it as like just a big popcorn movie. While for Meg and I, who both grew up on the original movies, this one really hit home for us. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I could tell we were both getting uh, a little emotional towards the end. More on that later. Uh, and I cried like a damn baby at the end. It was an ugly cry in public. It hits you right in the feels. I, I don't care. I did that. Uh, I did have a picture of beer in at that point, but... Well, first of all, you, which movies have you seen? Um, I've seen the first, the original ones, but it was a long time ago. And then I saw the 2016 one with my mom and Audrey. Okay. So you've seen Ghostbusters 1, 2, and the 2016. So I saw this movie the week after it came out, the day before Thanksgiving. And even booking my ticket a week in advance. And at non-IMAX or crazy theater. In terms of where I saw this film for the first time, I got to see it multiple times because as a cosplayer here in Minnesota, we actually get invited out to local theaters in order to help bring people in and then we show up in full costume and stuff and then uh, stick around and watch the movie. The theater was pretty busy. People just really wanted to see this movie. When the teaser dropped, I was intrigued by the premise they were presenting. After the full trailer, I was intrigued even more. I tried not to watch any of the trailers going in because I was worried that it would be 90% of what happened in the movie. Uh, I've since gone back and watched some of them, uh, and it wasn't as bad. So the first night was actually a Wednesday screening, which we found out about kind of last minute. And we reached out to the theater and didn't actually hear back from them. And so we just said screw it and showed up in full gear anyway. So there was a small number of us that were there for the this sort of sneak peek Wednesday night screening. And then Thursday, um, the North Star Ghostbusters split up into two groups and we went to two different theaters in the cities that had invited us out. And then on Friday was the big one. We were at the Mall of America at the B&B theaters. And normally when I do theater events with the other costuming groups that I'm a part of, we're limited to like five or maybe at most, maybe 10-ish costumers that would come out and hang out in the theater and take pictures with guests and stuff. Um, but the, the, the fine gentleman at the B&B theater at the Mall of America, who I don't think knew what he was getting himself into, did not put a limit on it. And we had, I believe, over 30 fully uniformed and geared up Ghostbusters from around Minnesota that all came together, and it was an absolute blast. My excitement for the film grew the closer it got. So much so that I decided to forego other plans just to see it. Uh, you've not seen any of the cartoon? No. And you never played a video game? Nope. So, with that context, and that's being his history, where, what, what did you think of the movie? I think it was, it was okay. It was, it was nice for, like, a family movie. I would watch it with, like, you know, my family over again. I'd heard all the praise, and I'd heard all the negative reviews. And when I walked out of the theater, I began to understand both sides. Uh, and I hope they enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I don't know. I just feel like it was like whenever it was supposed to be serious, it didn't take itself seriously. But uh, it's a family movie, so yeah. Right away, the tone felt right. Spoiler for my review. I thought it was a reinvigorating of the series without relying too much on the problematic characters. <coughs> Vinkman. <coughs> and where would you rank it? 
based on the uh, the three you've seen so far? Like, where would you rank all four movies, I suppose? I like the first Ghostbusters movie the best. Uh-huh. And then, you know, the second one. And then this one would be the third one. I don't know, like, 2016. Didn't really like 2016? Well, I didn't watch the 2016 one until I did this uh, submission for it for this podcast. So uh, I was rather neutral on it as well. I think I rated 2016 just slightly above Ghostbusters 2, but just very slightly. But I'm more or less right where you're at, I think. I heard some meh things from critics and some message boards I'm on, but for real, I'm all over this movie. It just hits the spot. So broadly speaking, did we like this movie? I'm going to say yes. Uh, it's not a complete Stranger Things ripoff. All the callbacks in the first and second movie slot right in. Uh, you get the music cues. Hell, the uh, like the same song they used in the... In the uh, and the video game, too. It, just, it was great. Like I said, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be, both good and bad. I remember seeing the New York Times review saying that it was all about nostalgia and, and merch sales. And it's like, yeah, it's a Ghostbusters movie. Where the hell have you been? This one, uh, for me personally, I like this one. I like the original 1984 one the most. I think I like this one next. It's where, where my ranking is at. Like, what was Ghostbusters 2, if not kind of a rehashing of the original, but with more toys in it and new costumes? Like, how is that different from Captain America in Avengers Infinity War? He has a new costume. He has a new arm shield, so you get new toys out of it. Like, every single movie, the superheroes change costumes so that you can get more toys out of it. Well, I don't know why Ghostbusters would be any different. It's not, it's not highbrow entertainment we're talking about here. Actually, for all of the nostalgia bombs and solid callbacks, this movie can stand on its own. I mean, it still requires the backstory that we don't get. Uh, If you've never seen the first movie, at least, you're going to be a little lost. It's silliness, with lots of weird plot elements in it and things that don't make sense. Now, there was a lot of things they called back to uh, from the original. They were really leaning heavy on the nostalgia. This film does a lot of things right. But I also feel like it dropped the ball when it came to something original. Which sometimes it worked and sometimes it seemed a little bit forced. Yeah, it did. When I heard critics say it was heavy on nostalgia, I was skeptical on how bad it was. Uh, they really retreaded the original movie's main plot. But after seeing the film essentially remake half of the first film, I quickly got it. Although they put a nice, I like the twist on it. Because one of the, I know some of the other podcasters have, have mentioned that, you know, they didn't understand, it was never really explained why this building was channeling, you know, uh, paranormal um, energies and so forth, which created the first uh, manifestation of Gozer. The Gozer plot could have been so much better had it not just rehashed the original plot. And in this movie, they talk about how, well, there was this mine where they had this special kind of steel that's where Evo Shandor actually, you know, got the the materials to actually build that building. And it's something about that, but those materials specifically that actually made that building kind of a beacon. Everything leading up to Gozer's return was intriguing. From Evo Shandor being responsible for the town down to Egon's trap to keep Gozer at bay. And so because this is where that material came from, of course, this place in the middle of nowhere, this old little mining town is now this focal point for this, this problem, new problem. But once Gozer reappears, nothing's new. Same stakes with recycled jokes. We start with this eerie opening in a cornfield. Okay, so 32 years after the Ghostbusters saved New York, they are back. Nope, 
Nope, that's just the ghost of Harold Ramis flipping his truck in a cornfield, then literally giving up the ghost to some apparition. This whole opening sold me right away. Uh, I think they portrayed Harold Ramis pretty damn well in this movie. The way we don't actually get a good look at Egon's face is extremely clever. Uh, I, di I didn't know what was going on. I knew I knew it was Egon. That's really all I knew. And I knew he was like putting some kind of plan in motion and it failed. Yeah. Making Egon's ghost an invisible character in the movie wasn't just genius from a story standpoint. It was one of the most meta things they could have done. If you remember him from the mid to late 2000s, uh, he was a little chunkier, fully bearded, uh, full on afro going on, little Jufro. Uh, up towards his death. When they portrayed him in the movie, it looks how I remember him later in his life. Uh, the body double and eventual ghost apparition version of him, I mean, they do look like him. Uh, and not just in a CGI way, he was in this damn movie. Uh, even the, the stuff later on with the ghost stuff, it, it just felt like a sarcastic ghost, but like, not really sarcastic, just like, super smart for, to everybody. The fact that Gozer actually kills Egon in the cold open also sets up the stakes like never before. And the very intentional use of the ghost trap, the PKE reader, and later the proton pack as the film's MacGuffins was insanely smart. Especially since those gadgets are probably not only the most iconic aspect of the entire Ghostbusters franchise, but I would argue are some of the most iconic props in Hollywood history. There is a solid foundation that this film is built upon. Anyway, short story long, Egon apparently had a daughter at some point, and she has two kids aged 11 and 16. This threw me for a loop because at one point we see Janine, and she's not Callie's mom. I also loved Janine's cameo in this. So apparently Egon had Callie before joining the Ghostbusters in 84. That's the only thing that would make sense because the actress is like 40. So I guess it's uh, before the Ghostbusters thing when he was still a professor. Well, the whole, whole premise is uh, their family is kind of getting evicted from their house, and they've inherited... Egon's farm when uh, he passed away, uh, so they're all basically moving out there. And so Callie's broke, getting evicted, and takes her kids out the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, to take care of her dead dad's affairs. And maybe you live in the house because there's nowhere else to go. A family inherits a house and its belongings from a recently deceased family member, and soon discovers that said family member was a Ghostbuster. Seems airtight to me. When the plot follows that idea, it shines. On one of the previous episodes, Corey said, It's a ghost movie ghost things. And I feel like the producers really leaned into that in the best way possible for this one. When the film chooses to deliver a heaping scoop of fan service, it doesn't always land for me. The kids mostly have their own side stories coming together at the end, a la Universal Monsters, but the world did feel kind of fleshed out. Uh, I love all the jokes about like, Dirt Farmer had a family. So I mean, that was, it was fun. So going uh, by the characters here, let's just go ahead and talk about the characters a little bit. I thought all the new characters were great, and the movie does a good job introducing and developing them all. What I found fascinating about Ghostbusters Afterlife, though, was I felt like there were multiple entry characters, like POV characters, depending on who you were in the audience. Uh, I don't remember their names very well, but we have Phoebe, who is kind of front and center in the movie. She's uh, really almost a main character. Phoebe, Egon's granddaughter. There, there's several characters that really show up a lot in a supporting cast, but I think she's the focal point. The story of Phoebe was the strongest element this film had. She was very much the heart of the movie. I've seen McKenna Grace in several different projects, and I'm always impressed with her. Brilliant actress. She has a long and bright future ahead of her. So Phoebe, uh, played by McKenna Grace, is Egon's splitting image and clone. And I say that because she's smart, 
not really concerned with her safety or laws. It's obviously Phoebe is our, our main character and is meant to be our main window, but I don't know how many of us can relate to a, a, a child prodigy genius. You know what I mean? Like, we're trying to experience things through her eyes. Uh, kind of on the spectrum, but self-aware enough not to care about it at all. She seemed to maybe be on the autism spectrum, and I thought that was all really handled very well. Here she plays Phoebe, an extremely intelligent outsider who's just trying to discover where she belongs in a family that's nothing like her. It, she could have been so precocious, and it would have been so annoying, but I think it was the right mixture of being a smartass and still... Not perfect. She doesn't just have all the answers. She just knows a lot of random crap. Uh, welcome to podcasting. Like, it feels like there's a different kind of character for everyone. So maybe Phoebe is meant to more be for those weird kids. Between Phoebe and podcast, certainly. Uh, the kids that like weird movies, or in this case, old movies, in the case of Ghostbusters, and are interested in, in getting in and seeing this weird thing and being that weird kid that's ostracized and then goes on to do great things. She's a brilliant, young, awkward, nerdy kid. Her journey should have been the main focal point of this film, and for the most part it is. However, the narrative begins to shift its focus as the movie goes along, especially at the end, and she doesn't feel as important anymore. Uh, she's Egon Spangler's granddaughter. She's very you know, knowledgeable, very intelligent, but somewhat socially awkward. She has to attend summer school for whatever reason. Isn't, isn't she smart as shit, though? Uh, I thought she did very well. Uh, she, is she one of the characters that was from uh, uh, Stranger Things? No, she's in like the Conjuring universe. She plays the daughter, Judy. I'm not familiar with that universe, I guess. But yeah, she's from... That's, that's what I recognize her from. Okay. And then maybe some are more like the brother who were just there. Well, which characters were from Stranger Things? Well, like, I guess her brother... Her brother I, was the only one from Stranger Things. Was he? Was okay. I don't know. I don't remember his name. I think it was Trevor. Trevor, I think, yeah. Who himself is kind of a genius in that he can fix cars at age 15, though I did have those friends in high school that loved working on cars. Trevor, Phoebe's brother, the kid from Stranger Things, was great in this. Finn Wolfhard is a very capable actor and also has a promising career ahead of him. The older brother, he kind of doesn't want to go. He's very, I wouldn't say he's socially awkward, but he's, he's very teenager, I guess. Yeah, it was kind of cliche. The way he was like talking to his mom, like, no, I don't want to away from all my friends, you know? Yeah. I think if there was one big criticism, it's that I'm not sure that the brother had any real purpose in the film outside of needing somebody to drive the car. He's more of a supporting character, but he would have been really relatable for me at his age. Finn gets a jo job at the local Sonic because apparently every teenager in the town works there. The town is like 40 people and 20 of them work at the Sonic. Uh, I don't know how that economics works. But his whole purpose in the film is to act in contrast to Phoebe. His plot, I didn't really think was super... The only other part of the main part of his plot is he finds Ecto-1 in the garage and he's like, he works on getting it running again. Yeah. Uh, Finn is apparently a grease monkey fixing up the old Ecto-1. Apparently, actually, in the uh, road trip from New York to Oklahoma, we see him under the hood while Callie and Phoebe are watching the sunset on the roof of the car. Uh, and then he's kind of the driver after that. Like, I don't... I don't know if I care at all that he doesn't like being there because he got to fix up this cool old car that he very much enjoyed driving around and, and got to have fun. So it's that question of, like, who do we feel for the most in this film? Yeah, he just can't. He's 15, so he shouldn't even be driving. Yeah. <laughs> Which does come back in the movie. Sure, he does fix Ecto-1 and becomes the wheelman, but what else does he do? We also got introduced to Trevor's... Um, girlfriend or crush i guess 
Uh, he has a crush on the older than him waitress, pretending he's 17, even though he's like 16 in a week. Yeah, I'm trying to get with this, the other girl. Yeah, he kind of falls in love with a, a girl, like, almost immediately in the new town, uh, and gets a job to be with, you know, kind of work alongside her. Yeah. And Lucky is nothing more than a love interest to Trevor. I'm not going to say Lucky is an entry character or a POV character for everyone, because I think we really only hear her name said, like, twice in the movie. So she's... She's just kind of there. Uh, actress was cute and good portraying small town life. And I thought they did a great job with her character as well, even though we didn't get a whole lot of development. Uh, we work one Kevin Bacon away from a dance-off, though, because this is a small town. Podcast. Character podcast is nothing more than comic relief. Yep. We've got another heroic podcaster as one of our main characters. Well, then we have uh, Podcast. There's a character named Podcast. Yeah. What do you think real name? I don't... I think they might have mentioned it, but I don't remember because they always they always refer to a podcast through most of the movie. Uh, I think maybe when he's first introduced. I think when uh, I think that's who like bumps into Paul Rudd's character at the very beginning when he's coming into school, and he, I think he mentions his name then. But I'm not I'm not 100. I have to go back and watch it again, which I can't do. At least not right now. Uh, detractor of the movie, we do meet podcast. Uh, the so-called comic relief of the film. Uh, of course, podcast's whole personality is he's, he's really, he's almost like the Ray stand-in, which is kind of why they had, they had like a little moment there at the very end, too. But he's he's really into like, you know, the mysterious and strange, and you know, he also has a wild imagination as well. These feel like shallow characterizations at best. See our Godzilla vs. Kong episode for more. But he does a podcast. There's only one subscriber to this podcast, but hey, you know, it's one. Yeah, you gotta try somewhere. You know, and, and it's not lost on me that we're doing a, a podcast submission here with a guy named Podcast that podcasts the movie. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But there's very much the sense of, like, you have a kid who kind of really wants to be there and is really interested in learning everything, and then her friend, Podcast, who maybe knows a little more about some of the ghost stuff, so he's kind of on, on that end, but, like, is still there learning. I could have done without him, but, I mean, we kind of did need an everyman. Because later in the movie, we get Paul Rudd fanboying, fanboying about all the um, the Ghostbusters gear and everything about it. But, like, you needed someone who didn't know anything about it. Uh, I, I liked him. He, he didn't really do much in the way of action. Like, he never, like got like the, the proton packs going and like, he wasn't ever shooting at ghosts yeah i think the most exciting thing he did was like he kind of controlled zap. the traps yeah he like like whenever he was zapping the tiny marshmallow men yeah they really add nothing to the story except numbers the same could almost be said for carrie coon and paul rudd fortunately they do have a greater purpose paul rudd is peak paul rudd in this movie you have paul rudd's character uh, where she has a teacher played by the sexiest man alive, Paul Rudd. Well, I guess we have Paul Rudd's character. Uh, he's he's kind of their summer school teacher, but he's also a seismologist. And... I, I don't know why there is a summer school, but he's playing movies like Cujo. I, I don't know. I just phoned it in. Who is absolutely the fans. Like, he's the one that thinks it's cool. Wow, look at this replica. I know what I'm seeing, even though, you know, he doesn't necessarily know who Gozer is or any of that. But he knows the history of the Ghostbusters. I was obsessed with this when I was a kid kind of character. I really love the Baskin-Robbins nod that felt like a clever Ant-Man reference. We as adults are meant to see ourselves in him, I think, more. Paul Rudd plays Mr. Gruberson. Rudd, who's always a delight, plays Mr. Gruberson and acts as the tether to the new kids and the events of the original film. Anyway, uh, she finds out he's a seismologist and actually in the town working the summer school job to figure out 
the source of the daily earthquakes. Part of the whole story uh, going into this is like they're in the middle of nowhere near no seismic activity, but yet every day they have this earthquake. In a town with no fault lines, no volcanoes, no nothing. And I thought it was really interesting how, and I'd actually be kind of interested to know if this is actually real science, but they, they talk about like the difference between like a volcanic eruption, what the sine wave looks like, yeah, and then like what an earthquake looks like, and then like what, what the wave is when it's like a more of an explosion type thing. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Sort of the same as like why Paul Rudd was a, it's not a geologist, but whatever, you know, earthquake guy shows how much of a tech genius I am. So they kind of got this, it is, the, the whole movie kind of came together in a way I was not expecting it to. I was kind of expecting like, you know, Paul Rudd and these kids yeah. to kind of get together and like, then they go and bust ghosts. And that really, they never really become Ghostbusters. But like, that's a thing that's just stated once as an excuse for why he exists and why he's there. And then I guess why he's the summer school teacher. I kind of think Paul Rudd didn't even really do anything. Well, because he just got possessed. He was almost the comic relief, which was somewhat strange. I mean, he offered some guidance, I guess, early on. But yeah, he became kind of the, the mom's love interest. Yeah, and after that, he got possessed and then just wasn't in the movie until the end. Yeah. Phoebe's summer school teacher, who happens to be a part-time seismologist, which is convenient for plot reasons. And then it's never brought up again, and his skills in that sense have absolutely nothing to do with anything. He just talks about, like, science is cool, and I'm otherwise just Paul Rudd in a Ghostbusters movie. And that felt a little off. You know, it's like there were little things that you were hoping were going to pay off later and, and maybe didn't. Phoebe also tells a uh, seismology joke and some winks. So Paul Rudd knows it's a joke. That, that was it was cute. Like the, the wink was just like he's like, are you are you telling no? Like, yes, because I winked. Uh, she's deadpan. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he was all throughout the movie, but he he wasn't important really, yeah, other yeah. than it being a love interest. He also charms his way into being a love interest for Callie, which does feel earned. Uh, I like Paul Rudd's interactions with the mom, but he also ends up dating her mom, which also becomes convenient for plot reasons. Callie is a woman who clearly had her fair share of garbage men, but to see Gruberson take a shine to Phoebe really makes an impact on her. And then the other adults that were dragged to a Ghostbusters movie and don't care see themselves in the mom character. She also doesn't have a job, maybe? I, I didn't really get that part. I don't know. The movie's focus really isn't on her. And I guess that kind of brings to the mom. I don't remember her real name, but her story is she does, she's very much doesn't like her father, who is Egon Spangler. That kind of annoyed me how she was just like, no, I don't care. He's just a bad person. I was just like, you're not going to try and like look at it from his perspective, like what he was trying to do. Like She doesn't care about trying to learn why he did anything. She just stuck on the fact that he left. Yeah, he left, didn't really say anything, didn't care about anybody. And that's kind of her thing is she didn't think that he ever even called or, or even thought about her or her family at all. Yeah. But she's a good actress. I liked her in other stuff. She was in... um. Avengers uh, playing one of the, the villains, which is crazy because you look at her side by side and you're like, what? Right. They're there being like, oh, yeah, I guess. Like, I guess this is going on. I guess I'm going to get sucked into this. They do get a great joke when they go into town. Uh, Finn from Stranger Things holds up his phone and complains about the signal saying one bar. And the mom is like, they better have a bar. I don't know. Like, Paul Rudd's character, like, in the end, Paul Rudd's character is there because they needed somebody to be the new Rick Moranis, I guess. Uh, the person that, that uh, gets possessed by the key master. 
I, I don't uh, beyond that you know what I mean like is it there because we needed character development for the mom like would this movie have been better if we spent more time with Phoebe and less time with everybody else as that one character learning and discovering things uh, we also get to see the mom passed out with a bottle of wine later so maybe maybe she has a problem maybe she does need this town I don't know and then of course at the end both of them become possessed by the demon god ghosts so I feel like with the mom and with Paul Rudd, uh, you were sort of retreading the same ground as we did with Sigourney Weaver and with Rick Moranis, but not as well, because they were very differently involved in the overall plot of the film. Uh, which was kind of a cool twist on the gatekeeper slash keymaster subplot for the first movie. Plus, they actually have pretty good chemistry together, which is nice. Now, the parts of the movie that stand out are the interactions with the ghost of Harold Ramis and Phoebe. Kind of guided by Egon Spangler's ghost. Now, that was something that was very abrupt to me. Was uh, It first happened with Phoebe, and you mentioned, like, the, the chess set. Like, at first, like, he's almost playing chess with his granddaughter, and that's how she initially figures something weird going on. I, I didn't know it was him at first, because, like, whenever she, like, actually saw him play back, he played back so aggressively, and I was like, okay, is this, like a bad ghost like I, I didn't really catch on until she went down into the basement it starts out with a game of ghost chess and eventually leads to phoebe finding the fire pole guided underground lab of her dead grandpa i wasn't sure until at the same time when i when i saw like the lamp actually pointing stuff out i was like, okay this is egon's yeah. ghost i suspected it with the chess set although she made a big deal about how she doesn't believe it ghosts and then like almost like two scenes later She's just kind of accepting that Egon's, yeah. like, pointing stuff out. Like, like, she's actually interacting with this lamp as though it's Egon, and like, it isn't weirder her out that it's moving of its own accord. Yeah, that was kind of, like, I felt like that's not forced. I thought whenever she was, like, using that, like, ghost detector thing, and then she went under the chair, uh, under the floorboard, yeah. to find the ghost trap, I thought that was, like, another evil ghost just trying to, like, you know, guide her to, like, let out another evil spirit. Another funny moment, Egon's directing lights around where Phoebe should find parts and how to fix things. And she's like, how did you make such a small cyclotron? And the light moves over to the entire wall of degrees. Yeah, we forget that he's actually the smart one of the group. Uh, Ray was the crazy one. I will admit not everything felt shoehorned in. Uh, well, a lot of the old equipment makes its return. Like, you, know, you have your proton packs, you have your traps. They look exactly like they did from the old movies. Subtle nods and references were more welcome to me like the headgear put on Lewis Tully after being possessed by Vince Clortho. The toaster in the kitchen being the dancing toaster from Ghostbusters 2. Phoebe uses her phone call to reach out to the old Ghostbuster number from the commercial. Are you troubled by strange noises in the night? Uh, and that number apparently goes to raise a cult shop from the second film. Let's also talk about that element that I think so many Ghostbusters fans were looking for, which is, tell me what happened to the Ghostbusters, right? Tell me, give me the story that I want for Ghostbusters 3. And that all sort of came in one giant lump of dialogue between Phoebe and Ray. When Ray's in the shop and Phoebe's in jail. Phoebe basically confronts Ray about the breakup of the Ghostbusters. Apparently Egon screwed them over because he had to lead on something big before everything is hashed out. Call-ins. The crunch bar Peter gave to Egon, and even Egon's collection of spores, mold, and fungus. But then you have the book stacking in Egon's home. The entire Keymaster Gatekeeper storyline rehash. Podcasts being covered in marshmallow cream, all the way down to recycled dialogue that doesn't always fit. Nice appearance by Bokeem Woodbine as the sheriff. 
that man's in the weirdest shit. I only remember him from like 3,000 miles to Graceland. Uh, and I think he was in uh, The Sentinel, a terrible movie with uh, the Starbuck from uh, Battlestar Galactica. I don't know, he's in the weirdest crap. When the sheriff said, who you gonna call? Really felt forced. Between Egon's lab and all the cool Ghostbusters easter eggs and gadgets, Ecto-1 was really the standout in this movie. It really looked like a beat-up old car that had been tinkered with over the years. Uh, I really liked the, the side saddle gunner seat from Ecto-1. That was cool, yeah. <laughs> and the addition of the gunner seat, which might have been a callback to the real Ghostbusters, was super clever. And, and you know, and, and actually like chasing that ghost through the city, I really liked that whole sequence. That was a lot of, that was a lot of fun and really cool. Ecto-1 wasn't just awesome looking, it was integral to the plot, and actually felt way more important in this movie than it was in any of the previous versions. He gets it running and he starts joyriding through the cornfield, and then he ends up right next to Phoebe and her friend, and they're like chasing this ghost, so he's like, okay, I guess I'll get in, and then they start chasing through the town, chasing after this ghost. So I actually saw the movie more than once that opening weekend. I saw it Wednesday and Friday, and then on Thursday I actually left halfway through the film because I was tired and I had been wearing a proton pack for too long and I knew I had to wear it for an extended period of time the next day and so I decided to go home early and get some sleep because uh, we hang out at the theater and then we go to a later showing of the of the film and so I will tell you that I left about halfway through after the initial busting of the first ghost from a ghost called Muncher <laughs> oh, the one that was shooting the yeah which really is kind of the only main busting of a ghost in that film. That's really the only big, other than Gozer herself or himself or itself and the dogs, Muncher, Muncher is the only real ghost that really makes an appearance. There isn't very many ghosts in this. Uh, then you have a ghost called Muncher and uh, and then the other ghost you have like these little like mini-sized Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, which is like the cute ghost we were mentioning earlier. But So really the only real main ghost is Muncher. I was kind of happy we didn't get Slimer again this time around. They can save him for a callback in the next movie if they want. Uh, the midway point of the movie sees Phoebe and podcast going against the movie's version of Slimer. Instead of Slimer, though, we get a similar ghost character they call uh, Muncher. A ghost called Muncher? Really? Definitely feels like the sort of a new Slimer, which is very much kind of what it was. We all assumed it was Slimer when we saw the original trailers, and you didn't get a very good look at the ghost. Who eats metal and can basically spit bullets. Which is similar to Slimer in a way, but his his stick is he actually eats metal, which was interesting. And they utilize that to get their equipment back later in the movie. Yeah. Now, I didn't hate Muncher. He worked as a plot device, and I get that he was a comedic character there for the kids. Uh, good introduction to ghost ca ghost catching. But uh, Finn gets the car and immediately just goes, like, hauling ass, uh, catching up with uh, Phoebe and Podcast. The kids catch the Slimer, uh, sorry, Muncher, with an RC car trap. Uh, so, I mean, like, Egon did keep up with technology. He was using uh, drones and shit. Uh, but not before destroying half of the main street of the town, which was all of the town. Uh, because, duh, Goatbusters. But all the non-humanoid ghosts are still a bit weird to me. Seriously, he kind of looked like a tardigrade. But... Hey, I guess I, I guess that's just a Ghostbusters trope at this point uh, that they'll probably never explain. Uh, they, they've, they've went and they've actually caught this first ghost, Muncher himself. And on the way back, they actually get pulled over by the police. And of course, the kid driving Trevor, he doesn't have a license. And of course, Ecto-1 hasn't been registered forever. Uh, so <laughs> they, they, they get, they get all their equipment and the car gets impounded and they get 
in, in, well, in jail temporarily until the mom comes back. Uh, so when when things they, they really need to get all their equipment back to actually fight this threat. You know, now now that you know Zul is reunited and Gozer is actually reappearing and basically apocalypse is happening they need to get their stuff back so because because muncher like eats metal and they know he eats metal and he was still in that trap uh podcast actually reaches through and releases that ghost uh, and, it, and the ghost comes out and like, actually eats the metal bars that are actually like holding their equipment inside and then you know runs off thankfully that's all he did because the very like the first thing he does when they first see him is when he first sees them, is he like basically expels like all this metal as bullets? What happened to Podcast after they got arrested? Yeah, I kind of wondered. I was like, there was no one that really. I, I kind of thought like the teacher was going to pick him up or something, but he never did. Yeah, I just forgot about him. They never really talk about his family. He's, he's just kind of there. That's, yeah, the, the PKE meter for whatever reason, like when it got real, it, it turned into like a stun gun. Yeah, and then you know he can zap these ghosts and like you know they kind of explode. Uh, we do get to the dumber parts of the movie. Not that it's bad, just branding. Uh, where they put, in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, they have a bright, big-ass super Walmart for a town of 40 people. Uh, and Paul Rudd just goes there for random reasons. We did get a fun scene with with the terror dogs, uh, or at least one, Vince Clortho, in uh, Walmart. Though, again, that was another really weird moment because, like, literally nobody else in Walmart noticed what was happening, noticed the mini puffs. But... One of the devil dogs, uh, Keymaster, just like Tully, and the ghosts have occupied the Walmart, including little baby psychotic state puffs. Marshmallow ghosts, that's what I like. Well, the marshmallows. I don't like the marshmallow things. I mean, they're cute. I get it. I get its callback from like the first That was just like fan service. It was. However, it totally made sense for this story to bring Stay Puffed back. At least in some form, because of the Gozer connection. Uh, I did like the scene. It was kind of unnecessary. It was just for commercial purposes. It ended up not feeling all that forced and was ultimately a pretty small part of the movie, but I thought this was a really earned reference that worked well within the overall story. Uh, but they're like roasting themselves to death in propane grills, riding around on Roombas. Um, they were mean, too. Uh, yeah, all the stuff in the commercial, it was whatever. Although I, I kind of wondered, like, when they started, when it started, like, fighting uh, Paul Rudd's character's uh, name, man. I was like, are these actually going to, I mean, because, like, he was supposed to be the form of the Destroyer. Are they actually going to have this be the form of the Destroyer? And they're just, he's just going to come back and coalesce? Yeah. And it didn't. It might actually end up being the last time we see the big guy. Or, um, little guys. But it really turned into somewhere something weird. It's supposed to be this cute little thing that I, to me, didn't land well. I mean, it was cute, but... <laughs> I just glazed over it. I wasn't like... Yeah, I mean, it was easy to ignore, but it was just kind of like an eye-rolling thing. Yeah. I have a feeling that they might bring the mini puffs back at some point. I just hope they don't overdo it. Nobody in Walmart seemed to react or respond when this thing exploded out the front of the store. The only person that was responding to any of it was Paul Rudd. And it's like, in the original Ghostbusters, uh, Rick Moranis' character, Lewis Tully seems in at least one scene to be the only person that can see the terror dog, but yet we know that other people saw the terror dog. It's really weird. It's like, I can't tell whether they're supposed to be like invisible hellhounds or not. Because at the start of the film, we got like a weird version of the terror dogs and we didn't get to see it, which means they can be invisible. And then it was like a that half standing, like half human, half terror dog thing was like what the ghost was it was very weird and confusing for me i don't know if like that's their ghost form and then when they attack you you turn into a 
terror, but then they are a terror dog in physical form. Uh, the Keymaster takes over Paul Rudd after destroying the Walmart, and nobody else was there. Go figure. Yeah, there's a lot about this movie and this this franchise that's confusing. In terms of favorite ghosts, we don't get a ton of choices here. We basically have Muncher. We have kind of the return of the of the the zombie cab driver, which I loved him sitting at the diner. Unless we want to consider Zool and Vince Clortho as ghosts, maybe there's a scene near the end where, like, similar to how in Ghostbusters one and two, you have like these montages of like ghosts escaping, like terrorizing people. They do a short version of that in, uh, yeah. in this movie. Only two ghosts really that stand out to me in my memory. There's one that was kind of an old skeletal miner that was getting coffee in a coffee shop. Uh, we have a ghost character that's actually from the animated series with the face and then a giant eye above it, which is kind of fun. And then the one with the eyeball. Yeah, and there was this eyeball one that like came, you know, the eyeball came out first and the ghost comes about behind it then it goes and runs off. But I think that's the only two from that scene that I remember. So other than those two ghosts, the only other ghosts we have, you mentioned Gozer, which I don't know if you want to call her a, a ghost, as much as I supposedly a god. And then you have Egon. So I don't know who you can say really is your favorite. I think Muncher is an interesting character. But uh, uh, there was a lot more ghosts, like, in the 2016 one, for sure. Yes, yes. The 2016 definitely did a lot of them, and they were proud of their special effects. Yeah. Uh, they, they had a lot of ghosts, and there were a lot of really cool-looking ghosts in that one, too. Well, after I'd slept on it, I kind of came to the realize what I didn't like about 2016 was that it was more of a parody of Ghostbusters than a Ghostbusters movie. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Uh, at the same time, Callie finds her dad's basement and finds out he really did love her. At some point, like, kept having photos or getting photos of her as she was growing up. And, of course, near the end of the movie, she finds, like, all these pictures. Of yeah, her. pictures. Kind of guided by Egon Spangler's ghost. Uh, even though, literally, Egon did nothing for her except, you know, watch from afar. Uh, whatever. You have Zool, both Zools. Time for Zool, the gatekeeper dog, to take over her. There is no mom, only Zool. And then Paul Rudd and Callie find their way to the mountain, and well, insert lock in the key. Diggity. If you're a fan of this podcast, and want to see it continue, help support us on Patreon. Where you can unlock tons of exclusive content, including, but not limited to, Movie commentaries, ad-free versions of our promo specials, extended cuts, early access to new episodes, behind-the-scenes clips, first access to merchandise, blooper reels, and even a chance to vote on what we cover next on our podcasters' disassembled episodes. Just head right on over to patreon.com slash podcastersassemble. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash podcastersassemble. Link in the show notes. Uh, the movie goes into full Scooby mode after this, with the kids inspecting the mountain where there used to be an old mine. When we first see that sign that says Shandor Mines, Meg and I both pointed to the screen and gave each other a look. I actually didn't notice that in the trailer. And also, in, in that cave, like, Evo Shandor kind of comes back in this movie. Literally, in fact. I really appreciate the inclusion of Evo Shandor himself. I thought that was a very cool touch. Oh yeah, the whole town was built by Ivan Shandor. Yes, the bad architect from the first film. Mentioned in passing. And speaking of Evo Shandor, he actually shows up physically. Uh, oh, and Ivan Shandor is basically in an undead state of suspended animation, 
rising every day when the ghosts do, but then dying off as the ghosts go down again. Pretty creepy. Holy crap, is that is that J.K. Simmons as Evo Shandor? Played by J.K. Simmons. I'm glad they shoehorned Ivan Shandor in here and his complete devotion to Gozer. I didn't like the stunt casting with J.K. Simmons. Was was J. Jonah Jameson the real villain behind Ghostbusters all along? Uh, seemed unnecessary as like a that guy. And feels absolutely wasted. Because we have Ivo Shandor show up and then and then get torn in half, which, alright. I thought they wasted Evo Shandor. Because yeah. I remembered him from the first movie. And there's all this buildup. And he wakes up. It's like, oh, wow, Evo Shandor is going to be in this movie. Uh, there was a far, fun point where Ivan Shandor is like, Gozer, blah, blah, blah. And she rips him right in half. Like, whoo. Oh, never mind. Go- Gozer just ripped him in half. Why even bother putting him into this film to begin with? And he basically, like, tries to seduce Gozer, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. gets ripped in half for his trouble. <laughs> I was, yeah, that was, like, just weird. I was like, what? I, I didn't really Yeah, understand. and then he's gone and not, you know, not mentioned again. I thought that was a wasted opportunity. I was a little bit annoyed at that. Yeah. There had to be more to his role. You know, he, he's kind of responsible for all of this. I thought he was a good guy at first. Mm, no, yeah, I, I recognize the name because he's Evo Shandor who made the, the building to channel, you know, in the first movie. Yeah. And I recognize the name. I also recognize his name as he plays heavily in the uh, 2009 video game. As we mentioned on a review of the 2009 video game, Evo's spirit and his Gozerian cult were actually the main villains in that game. And eventually being used as the uh, ultimate bad guy in the 2009 video game, which you've listened to our episode, was originally taken from some of the draft of the third movie. So this feels like a cool tie-in with that. Which, if you've not played it, I'm going to have to get that for you, because I love that game. It's really good. It's basically Ghostbusters 3. That's cool. Uh, Yeah, I'd definitely play that. I thought it was kind of cool they did, like, all these years. They had, like, this temple to... Gozer and everything else. It was also in his house too. That was the first thing I noticed. Yeah, one of the first. and it was kind of cool how they like showed off these years and what happened in these years that eighteen uh, something like Krakatoa. Yeah, and then I forget what it was for nineteen oh eight, but then like nineteen forties, nineteen forty five. That's World War Two. I mean, technically, they, they said, "Well, what didn't happen?" So, yeah, well, that's, that's kind of. Vague. I guess I, I, I expected them to just say the new nuclear bombs went off. I don't know, whatever. It was vague, but it was like a very momentous year. Mm-hmm. Uh, then 1984, that's when the first Ghostbusters happened. The Manhattan uh, Paranormal Crossrip or whatever he called it. And then the next one was 2021, which is when this movie takes place. The kids discover the world as ghosts pop up in cycles, one for like every major event, some including the past, the 1984, and now 2001. But Egon built like a simple detector with a PKE emitter, and some protons pack hooked up across the streams every day. So when the ghosts come out of their hellhole, uh, PK emitter goes off, uh, streams get crossed, uh, earthquakes. It's like a bad clogged toilet. Just for the nostalgia factor, what did you think of the return of Gozer? I mean, I mean, it was all right. I truly wish they hadn't reused Gozer. In terms of ghosts, we can also talk about Gozer. I really did like the the change in Gozer as far as getting peeled in half. I thought that was a very cool effect, though I don't know then why that wouldn't result in Gozer immediately disappearing. Speaking of, Olivia Wilde, you know, from Tron fame and like tons of other things, nailed the original Gozer look and acting. I mean, I feel like I feel like they're gonna bring him back again in a future movie, just because the way that he like disappeared, not disappeared, but like was defeated, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, they can always open up the traps, I guess. Yeah. You can't tell me it wouldn't have been much more interesting to have an unknown variable that no one would believe Egon about 
for a plethora of reasons, thinking he'd gone mad, only to learn that it was due to the spirit itself and the torment it put him through. Sounds solid to me. I feel like it'd be more nostalgic for like, like my mom. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, she grew up watching those movies. You know, those are just like some movies that I just like. Oh, I want to watch these. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wonder about that. Like, those of us that really grew up with the Ghostbusters back in the '80s, and how how it differs from you know a younger set of eyes. Because a lot of things you grew up with aren't the same thing, you know. And it isn't to say that you don't. Because you said you enjoyed the Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. but it's but it wasn't really a cultural like significant part of your childhood. Yeah. I actually thought for some reason they had CGI'd it or brought the original girl back in. Crazy. It was. It was. She's uncredited, but it was perfect. So yeah, we did have Gozer come back. Uh, she, um, she or he or it, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I never specified. Well, actually, they actually they, they said it, it isn't really either. It, yeah. But then uh, they kept calling her she. I think. Yeah. Well, it looks very feminine. Yeah, it does. I thought they did a decent job of recreating what she looked like in the original movie. Obviously, a little bit more high definition, being uh, 2021. 2021. Yeah. The kids hatch a plan. Figure out the barn is a trap. They rescue their mom, you know, screw the teacher, get Gozer to follow. Kind of a chase scene ensues, leading back to the farm. Uh, Finn's girlfriend, part of the plan originally, we didn't see where she was from, comes out of the house, helps trap Gozer, uh, who is kind of strong and a god. Uh, also, the trap doesn't go off like in the beginning. Also, how they kind of deal with Gozer was, it was kind of interesting. They, they kind of caught one of the dogs. You know, they, they, yeah. they still do this in the gatekeeper keymaster thing like in the first movie yeah i thought she was gonna like completely disappear because they said that they needed both of them for gozer to be there then they got they caught one of the like demon dogs yeah one of the gatekeepers but she was still there but she's only like half there and so i was kind of like oh, okay yeah well she i guess she didn't have her full power or whatever yeah. which I, I think that's what they were trying to like show off is what was happening at the very beginning of the movie that's what egon was initially did he caught one of the dogs yeah and you know, without actually showing you what was going on, because because at the very beginning of the movie, they don't really I hardly know. show the face. Yeah, I didn't even know that he caught the dog. To be honest, I, I didn't realize that's what he had done until the end when yeah. they recreated it. But then Ray Vinkman and Winston show up, old as shit, but still decked out. Of course, we have the original Ghostbuster showing up near the end. I expected that. Yeah. Well, and we kind of knew that from the previews as well, that they were going to. Yeah. That final scene where the original Ghostbusters finally show up for one last Ghostbusting mission really hit me in the feels. While it was nice seeing the original team back together again, their entrance could have been better. But we only really get the one scene, and then everybody shows up at the end, and oh, look at them, they're in costume, and oh boy, they are old. Except uh, Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson looks fantastic. Vankman, Winston, and Ray, they show up like they never left. And the fact that Egon wasn't by their side really tugged at my heartstrings. And they are themselves. Or they actually had more screen time than I actually thought they were going to have. I didn't, I guess I just didn't really think about it too much. Um, but yeah, Dan Aykroyd certainly showing his age. And Bill Murray, It's and I feel really bad saying it, the dude really didn't look like he wanted to be there. And I didn't get, I got a, oh, it's Bill Murray and he's really tired and clearly hates wearing the proton pack which he says and has always said multiple times i feel like he never really loved ghostbusters in general he liked the first film didn't really want to do the sequel didn't really want to have a whole lot to do with anything else everyone you know it, it, this is basically the climax of the film it's it's going to be go as exactly as you assume it's going to go uh, the movie ends with egon's ghost though helping phoebe out with her proton pack it was a little odd they they actually like tried to retread some of the uh original lines too like you know she uh, ray 
To hell with this back and forth with Gozer and having to rehash the Are You a God line, which doesn't work well here at all. Of course, I like how he changed it. He actually very specifically said where he was and which county he was in Oklahoma and the wildlife, you know, whatever. <laughs> As opposed to the city, you know, city, county, and state of New York, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Just have them come in. Proton packs a blazing. We can get to all the chit chat later. And of course, they do the Are You a God? So they, they kind of like made like a self referential joke that, eh, it was It was cute, but I wouldn't say it was great. Yeah. He materializes. Everyone crosses the streams. Finn powers up the trap, which apparently like 400 little traps under the ground. It's like a grid of traps. And I'm also not entirely clear about the multi-trap thing where like, is that ripping Gozer apart, I think? And then they're in all the traps, but then there's nowhere for those traps to go because we don't have a containment unit as far as we're aware on the farm, right? Uh, capturing all of the ghost tornado around them, including Gozer uh, and the souls of the devil dogs, it was such a great moment, and it hit me a lot harder than I was expecting, which was then, of course, amplified by what came next. And when I said the original team, I did mean Egon as well. The same way as, and here come all the spoilers, Egon at the ending. Well, I guess there is one other ghost. Egon Spangler himself. Yeah. This whole ending with the ghost of Egon coming back to help them stop Gozer one last time was absolutely brilliant. I did say before one of these episodes that Bill Murray would only do a sequel if he could die within the first 10 minutes and come back to haunt the Ghostbusters. So I'm sorry, Bill, but uh, Harold Ramis had to fulfill that role. Well, I don't believe it was necessary for him to have stuck around as long as he did in a visible, ethereal form. The scene where he was assisting Phoebe was a nice touch. The old Ghostbusters uh, get to say goodbye to Egon, and so does Callie. Like, the way it was done, the way it was shot, the fact that you see the, the ghostly, the force ghost you know, hand first before you see the full character. The CG in that movie, it was really good, except when it came to the ghost, the dad. Egon? Yeah, Egon. His CG was kind of weird. Well, there's a lot of, like, these things where they're trying to make something look like somebody else. Yeah, deep fake. That um, other people will complain about. I never, I never personally noticed, but that would probably why, because they, are, they made a lot of effort to make that look like Egon. I think a lot of us expected something like that to happen, um, but I don't know that we were expecting a full-on CG uh, Harold Ramis. First of all, I honestly think it's the best special effect in the movie. But damn, if it didn't make me cry at the end, just like appearing, it, it, you have to see it, but it really was him in spirit and everything. Like it was, it was great. The light, the ghost was sarcastic. It's a touching tribute to Harold Ramis in the best way. It's not too cheesy, it's heartfelt, it's integral to the story, and they do it in a way that's not at all disrespectful to his memory. And there were quotes from his daughter who thought it was awesome that, rather than what Harold Ramis had become, which was a much larger, jollier man, that they kept this very skinny, slim, bearded Egon because that was the character, not the actor. And so uh, she thinks that Harold Ramis would have loved that little detail. The fact that he didn't say anything as a ghost made it that much more profound. Now, he never spoke because probably whoever was that was wouldn't sound like Egon. Yeah, they did. I, I thought it looked like Egon, you know, especially in the face or whatever. But that ghost does look significantly different than the other ghosts in the movie. And the mom's entire story arc was about her overcoming her relationship with her distant father and realizing that he did, in fact, love and care about her. But they, they really, especially at the end, turned this into a, a tribute to uh, Harold Ramis. 
Now, I don't know how much Harold Ramis... Like, I know Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd kind of co-created the Ghostbusters. I don't know what parts of it are his ideas and what parts of it are Dan Aykroyd's. It was all so freaking moving that I'm tearing up just thinking about it. It was it was nice. It was a little... It went on a little bit too long at the end where it was yeah. this ghost of Egon Spangler's just hanging around, especially after they made the entire farm a trap and somehow he didn't get caught. Yeah, I was <laughs> confused about that too. I was like, <laughs> all the ghosts are getting sucked up and then he was just, he's just standing there. Like. Mm-hmm. So they would have to go to New York where we find out at the end there's a containment unit, but like nobody knows that. And they already know that, you know, the, the traps can be a bit faulty or just somebody at some point can open it. So that's concerning. Uh, Vinkman offers Phoebe some hot cocoa, uh, though his might have rum in it. You know, then they have four Harold at the very end, which I get it. I mean, I like that they did a tribute. I didn't think that tribute fit well right there. It was kind of strange. It's like pan up and it's a four Harold. And if you don't know who Harold is, it's a very confusing thing. But overall, the movie actually made me laugh out loud a couple of times. The main thing, the, there was a scene that made me laugh out loud, and this is a very difficult thing to do. And it only happened on my first viewing, but it is when a muncher flies through the diner and you just hear him go, blah, 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 blah. For whatever reason, that hit me just right and I laughed out loud. And then, of course, I rolled tears at the ending, even though it was absolutely that thing and I knew it was that thing and I knew that it was built, the entire movie was built to lead up to that moment. Like, that was the entire point of this film, was to bring you to that moment. And, okay, so I guess I guess last thoughts. It is absolutely a nostalgia hit and a thing trying to sell merchandise, and I'm okay with it. One thing that I think the original movie totally got right was the balance of horror and comedy, which I've talked about before on the previous episodes. I think it's why both Ghostbusters 2 and Answer the Call didn't quite work, because uh, GB2 was a tonal mess, trying to appease both the adult fans of the first movie and the kids who liked the cartoon, while the 2016 movie leaned way too far into the comedy elements to the point where it felt like a spoof. But I think Afterlife really manages to find that perfect balance, and even updates the approach for a modern audience. I thought it was a very solid re-entry. Going back to that New York Times article that said it was just a, a, a cash grab and a nostalgia thing, it also said it was effortlessly watchable. And I think that was the point. I don't think this was meant to be a great think piece. I don't think it was meant to be a laugh-out-loud, rolling-on-the-floor comedy that I think the 2018 was hope or the 2016 one was hoping it was going to be. I think this was meant to be a much smaller story, and this is like, if you had the chance, this felt like a good fan film. You know, it felt like a really solid, solidly directed, solidly written, like if you were going to tell a small story, and you live in Oklahoma, and you want to make a Ghostbusters film, and you want to put your kid in it or something, like what would that story be? And I think that's what this was. Like, this feels like a really good modern sequel to an 80s comedy because we keep getting those you'll you'll realize remember coming to america where it's like oh they're doing the same stuff from the first film but they're older now is this what we want and i think ghostbusters looked at that and say i i don't know if we do like i don't know it very much could have been a film about the original ghostbusters 
having to come back for one last go. And I think that would have been a great film too. It could have been the Rocky Balboa of uh, the films. Instead, it was more like the Creed, where we're looking more at sort of the next generation and the original show up. They just weren't there that much. And I think that's okay, because then you can rely on the strength of the actors that you have. They really went for more of a Stranger Things vibe, going so far as to include one of the Stranger Things kids, which I thought was a really smart move, especially since Stranger Things really heavily built off the nostalgia of, you know, 80s movies like Ghostbusters. I thought setting this one outside of New York was brilliant for a number of reasons. In the 80s, cities were kind of terrifying. But since then, a lot of urban areas have been cleaned up significantly. But now rural areas, you know, the creepy old backwoods small towns, are what's scary. Uh, and it's interesting because here in the States, at least, whereas for much of the 20th century, Americans were moving for jobs in the, in the big cities, we're kind of seeing an opposite shift now with so many people moving away from populated areas to the suburbs or smaller towns, especially with our current economic issues and, you know, late-stage capitalism. In fact, that's almost a theme in the movie, which I thought was pretty incredible. I felt like there were times when the movie really slows down, while at the same time it felt like they were trying to speed things up by cutting it tighter when it, when it was slower. To me, this movie is about how we need to come to terms with the past in order to move forward. It doesn't mean forgetting what came before, but using our knowledge from what may not have worked out to build a better future. I want to talk about the film's music because I feel it personifies some of this film's problems for me. All right, I know I'm going on way too long and I'm making you edit this and I apologize. There is one more thing I have to, have to, have to say before I go, and that is the music. Rob Simonson scores a nice blend of original music and cues from Elmer Bernstein's original score. Using some familiar cues here and there to enhance a scene can make it or break it, depending on how it's used. In my opinion, subtlety is best because you don't initially realize how the music is affecting you. God bless the composer of this film, especially when things were slow in this movie. One of my favorite uses of this trickery, if you want to call it that, is in Halloween 20 years later. One particular scene, John Ottman gently inserts a few bars from the Psycho theme when Janet Lee is on screen. It's not necessarily obvious unless you know the theme quite well, and it's a nice little nod. Here, the music bounces from an original score to hinging on Bernstein. And this wouldn't be a bad thing if it were merely accenting more of the Gozer material. That's something we're familiar with. And it already has music cues. The fact that it sounded like I was hearing Elmer Bernstein's score from the first Ghostbusters throughout absolutely kept me in that nostalgic headspace. Yet the need for nostalgic elements was so overpowering that it dampened what could have been something even better. Hence my issue with this movie. And I absolutely loved the score to this film. There's not much new stuff in this film. Uh, we It's basically a rehash of like continuing and closing out the original story from the, from the sequels. It certainly felt like there was a lot more of this film packed into the space that we had. Like it was cut very, very tight. Like we jumped to a scene and we're like, welcome to Rust City. This is where they, you know, made the selenium for the, for refine the selenium. Oh, okay. You know, and then boom, and then ghost and, you know. I liked Muncher. I'm glad we didn't get Puppy Dog Slimer from the cartoons or something. The rest of the ghosts were fine. Uh, we do basically get the old taxi driver, old ghosts. Uh, one was in the diner, uh, but nothing over the top. It was just, it was really about the story of the kids. But, I mean, as far as what I thought, uh, I did like this movie. I think they really used nostalgia as a little bit too much of a crutch. 
Yeah. Uh, and then some things really went on a little bit too long, especially at the end when they're like doing this goodbye with Egon's ghost. Yeah. The movie worked best for me when it was acting like a continuation and not a remake. Uh, but there were also a lot of moments in this movie that were clearly built like an Avengers film. Like, I feel like this movie learned a lot from the Avengers movies and a lot of other films that work on nostalgia, where they pause and they're giving you a moment to absorb what's happening, maybe longer than they would if it wasn't an American film, for American audience to, to really grasp or cheer or clap, um, or just to heighten that tension. Like, that first time Phoebe flicks on that proton pack and then everything goes silent, including the sound from the pack itself before she hits that emitter button and, uh, and launches the proton stream for the very first time. Like, they're clearly trying to make that a huge thing for us. Like, I wasn't really super invested in the mom not being... I understood her not being, you know, close to her father and why she was... Uh, but, but to me, like, the her accepting her father was when she's sitting there looking at the picture. She didn't... They didn't need to do the extra step of him hugging her ghost. Or, yeah. Or her hugging his ghost. But I think Spengler here obviously has to take the cake. The uh, the ghost... Uh, Force ghost Spengler, who maybe could have materialized at any time, but decided not to until the end. Who knows? Who knows? It was a very Harry Potter moment, you know, where uh, the wands connect and all the people Voldemort killed, including Harry's parents, pop out and then help him stand next to him. And that sort of thing. It felt very much like that. And you kind of felt it coming. But that's okay. I think anything McKenna Grace as Phoebe said was great in this role. And anything they had her do immediately worked. She was a good deadpan. She was the straight man. But like, I don't know. Everything she said just worked. Phoebe's self-discovery was the linchpin of the story. Podcast was meh. Whatever. I, I, I think that kid was a little precocious. I think Paul Rudd was fine, but wasted in performance. I think it was a good cast to match with the mom. I don't think there was any point to him otherwise. Uh, Finn Wolfhard was good. He was basically playing second fiddle, uh, less so than a Stranger Things character, but I mean, he had something to do. I did like the cameos by all the old cast, and they weren't just jokey, like in the 2016 adaptation. They did something. When she called Ray and he said, Egon Spangler can rot in hell, that was a huge shocker. And I'm wondering if that was the best way for that to be delivered. I mean, I guess if we're focusing more on Phoebe and sort of these future Ghostbusters... When you learn the truth of what's happened over the past 30 years, it adds to the mythos in the right way. Also kind of, you know, telling in terms of this film is that it was Ivan Reitman, director Jason Reitman's father and the director of the original two Ghostbusters films, was the one who was the stand-in for Egon. And I think a lot of that is, is telling partially because this is, in many ways, the story of, of Jason Reitman. And, you know, I saw a review that was just angry, talking about how uh, Jason Reitman said, you know, this film was sort of his way of dealing with his own childhood abandonment issues. And the reviewer was like, how can you have abandonment issues if you're standing next to your dad and working with him? And the response to that is because of the film industry and the way it works, like he, even if he was there on set, like his dad was gone all the time doing these things and clearly he couldn't be around for all of it. And so he felt a little abandoned by, you know, his father spending all of his time working and directing films, especially this giant film Ghostbusters that exploded everywhere. And so him using his father as Egon and dealing with this issue of parentage in this film was sort of his way of being like, like Egon was gone because he cared about this thing and decided this thing was more important than his family. And the reality was, no, it's because everything was more important than his own happiness. 
not and the family was just sort of the collateral damage of this thing he felt he needed to do and hoped that in the end the sacrifices he made and the things that his his kids and grandchildren would miss out on would be worth it for them in this case living and the world not being destroyed by Gozer and so that was kind of the message that Jason was sort of trying to tell himself through discovering Ghostbusters himself by writing this film and directing this film. He was trying to reach back and realize, you know, his father's motivations for what he was doing, trying to understand why his dad wasn't around so much by getting involved in this giant franchise. And I think that's an important thing to realize about this movie is it's not just a popcorn flick, though it's very much that with a lot of things that, you know, just don't make sense or are extremely convenient. But it's also a story about a boy and his father, or in this case, a girl and her grandfather, or a woman and her father. Jason Reitman loved the series his dad made, and it shows. But yes, overall, Ghostbusters Afterlife, if you've listened to this whole thing, Oh my god, what's wrong with you? The whole thing was just spoiled for you. Literally the whole thing. You poor bastard. Well, that's... I can't really think of a whole lot more I want to talk about in this movie. I enjoyed it. Um, I'd probably watch it again. Uh, I don't think it was better than the first movie. Uh, there were a couple post credit scenes. Uh, one of which was just kind of this extended joke from the first movie with Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray. With the, with the psychic thing and the oh, electric yeah. shock. The mid credit scene gives us a really awesome moment between Bill Murray's Vankman and Scorning Weaver's Dana as the two reenacted the psychic shock treatment gag from the first movie. Uh, best mid credit scene. Vankman and Dana, uh, still together, are playing the card game from the first movie with the shocker. This time with the tables justifiably flipped on Vankman. All right, let's talk uh, end credit sequence. The Bill Murray Sigourney Weaver sequence was fine. Which was kind of strange. Like at the very, they started rolling the credits, and they said uh, they started like listing the actors. And of course, they went through you know Bill Murray and you know Van Aykroyd, Annie Potts, and it says with Sigourney Weaver. I, said, I don't remember Sigourney Weaver in this movie. And I try to think. Where's, I, I actually kind of like for a moment thought was Sigourney Weaver like made up to be Zool or Gozer? I mean, I'm like wait a minute. But then they did the post credit scene. I was like oh, which is the same thing they did in the 2016 movie. Like. Sigourney Weaver made an appearance, but it was the post-credits scene. It was weird. It felt a little forced. I didn't feel the chemistry between the two actors. Also, are Vinkman and Dana using it as like a lead into sex? Like, you know, shock the old man with a heart attack and then jump his bones? I don't know. It's weird. And uh, I felt like they were kind of trying to call out Vinkman's actions in terms of his, um, you know, less than ethical treatment of women. But I... I don't know, I feel like it just, it was there and it was interesting, but it, it seemed weird. And then at the very end, we get a deleted scene from the original movie that subtly hints at a relationship between Janine and Egon, which really made it all the more moving. It was, it was kind of the same way that like Janine showed up at the start and then like disappeared until the end credits sequence. And it was a little disappointing. It's like, okay, you're here and that's awesome and we get that guest appearance, but like then you're not there anymore and you would think the mom might have some other questions for you or something like that. Uh, the other post-credit scene was kind of Janine and Winston. Winston Zedmore. Ghostbusters Afterlife finally does justice to Ernie Hudson. Oh, it turns out that Winston is rich as shit. Has been subsidizing Ray's rent. You know, he's going to turn a profit one of these years. Turns out, after the band broke up, Winston Zedmore became a successful businessman. 
In fact, he was even helping to keep Ray's occult bookshop afloat because he's genuinely an awesome guy. But they, they kind of have this chat where Winston's kind of gone on and become like this, this wealthy businessman. But the whole time, like, he's like going back to the firehouse. Ecto-1 comes in. I don't know who's driving it, but, you know, he's patting it. And also owns the old firehouse? As far as the the end end, you know, we have Winston going into the old firehouse, which we were told was supposed to be a Starbucks. So I assume that must have just been some offhand comment that Ray made or they made a mistake and didn't realize that, no, it not only wasn't a Starbucks, it didn't look like it had ever been a Starbucks. It had looked like it was just completely abandoned. And then at the very end, they kind of like show that this containment unit has been down there apparently all this time and like a little red light's flashing. So, I mean, it's a great lead into a sequel. Kind of like, I guess, trying to set up another Trying to set up the next movie, which is cool. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind another one. What do you think? Yeah, I wouldn't mind another one. I'd definitely go see it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was for us to be like, yeah, we love Phoebe. Phoebe's clearly going to be in charge of the new Ghostbusters and as our favorite new... Like, I don't feel like that was this film. I would love to see all the new characters again in a sequel. Or even, I don't even know if they're going to be future Ghostbusters, right? Like, that might not be the case at all. Their adventure might be done, except they are still stuck on this farm with no money. So, wait a minute. Like, their whole initial problem was never actually solved. That's gotta be a bad thing, right? Especially Phoebe. Like, I don't think anybody is is looking at at Phoebe and her brother and Lucky and Podcast and, and being like, yeah, these are our new four Ghostbusters. Like, I don't think... I don't think that's what this was. So again, it was different in the 2016 movie in that way. That's not what this... We were being told a story in this world, and maybe those characters will come back, but we'll have to wait and see. I want to see her grow into her grandfather's role and continue his work. So are we looking forward to more Ghostbusters? I am. I'm excited. It was like Jason Reitman was saying, I'm, I hope we left the door open for more people to tell stories in this world. I just kind of like, after all these years now, <laughs> they're just now noticing, hey, this, whatever happened to the containment unit? Yeah. <laughs> Which I actually was something I was wondering about during the movie. It was like, they're catching these ghosts. It's like, are they going to contain these somehow? Yeah, like, <laughs> where are they going to put all these boxes full of ghosts? Yeah, they got a lot of them now. I would love to see some of the characters from the comic books from Extreme Ghostbusster showing up. But then again, I guess the Ghostbusters did come back. They, I guess it can be assumed they took care of it somehow. Yeah. They did kind of come back and like, we're Ghostbusters again and we're back. And Well, except we're not back, but we are. I'm anxious to see how the sequels flesh out anything that happens. I think they will. But give us the, our, the female, the goth girl from Extreme Ghostbusters as Ray's assistant at uh, Ray's Occult Books, just like in the comic book. You know, give us some of that. Give us the rookie. Give us uh, the Chicago team like we got in the comics. You know, give us some of that. I feel like that could be a whole lot of fun for us to enjoy, to play around with. Show us, for God's sake, let Janine hold a Neutrona wand. Like, I want to see Janine suit up. So partner her again with Winston going forward in the next one. I really hope that this is setting Ernie Hudson up as the Nick Fury-style mentor to this new generation of Ghostbusters. But I do love the idea of Winston serving as sort of the uh, the new Egon from the Extreme Ghostbusters cartoon, where he's the one that's going to train the next generation. I think Ernie Hudson is a fantastic actor who, as we keep saying on these podcasts, got so shorted by this series which served to like define his career while also not giving him nearly enough space to grow and to act. 
I think Winston, uh, the character Winston Zedmore, could play like the Godfather character to stuff. And give us like a weird out of, uh, not out of touch, but give us sort of a weird film of Winston looking to train new Ghostbusters in New York with Janine. I think that could be a whole lot of fun. And again, that's kind of what I want out of these Ghostbusters films. I don't really want a retread of the originals. Like, I want them to play in the world they have built, which, again, the thing we need to keep in mind, has very inconsistent rules and weird things happen for no reason. Do you remember the painting at the end of Ghostbusters 2? Hopefully we'll finally get that Ghostbusters International franchise that I've always dreamed of. But if this franchise wants to continue, it has to let go of the past and start embracing new ideas. That's at least some credit I can give to the 2016 remake over this one. At least it had an original villain. I don't know. It would be, it would be interesting to see how they, uh, they did I was kind of expecting this to be more of a passing of the torch. Mm-hmm. And yeah, cause I, I honestly thought Paul Rudd would have been in the movie a lot more. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I th- even the kids, I thought this would be like, you know, they become the Ghostbusters, and it really yeah. is like the way it's all like played out. It's almost like they won't wouldn't even be in another movie, other than it's like a cameo. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't feel like I was seeing Peter Venkman return to the screen so much as I was seeing Bill Murray there uh, because he was asked to and decided it was something the fans would really like, and so he was doing it for other people. But it was still kind of the same sad Bill Murray we tend to get, which doesn't really jive with who Venkman was at that point, right? We were told he returned to academia. He was a teacher. He apparently married Sigourney Weaver, we think. I mean, he's married and he's with Sigourney Weaver at the end. So maybe he finally marries uh, Dana Barrett. Who knows? But it didn't it didn't feel like it. Like the dialogue seemed like maybe it was supposed to be Venkman-ish. I think Ray might show up again, but Ackward's probably fading out. Bill Murray's over this shit. He's done. But yeah, and then they have the behind-the-scenes photo, and the dude just, yeah, it does not look like he wanted to be there. So I'm sorry, Bill Murray. I'm sorry we dragged you back into this. Thank you, I guess, for doing it for the fans. Now, I feel like I've done nothing but tear this movie down, and I don't want to sound like I hated it. I didn't. I honestly wanted a second viewing before this pod to ensure my feelings were valid. There were several solid moments in this flick that worked for me. I just wish there would have been more. The chase around Somerville was probably the biggest highlight for me, all because it was attempting something new with things we'd already seen. Never once had we seen ghost busting from Ecto-1, nor had we seen a trap on wheels. Yeah, I I think this movie was a good movie and a good closeout to the series. Uh, If they don't make any more, this was better than 2016's adaptation, and it was a continuation that we didn't get with the 2009 video game adaptation. But go see the movie. I'm, I'm curious if it's going to hold up when I see it in however long it is before I, I rewatch the thing. Probably not. Like, on my subsequent viewings, the jokes weren't clearly, they weren't hitting as hard. I wasn't loving it as, as much as I was. It was just like, you know what? Yeah, that was a solid movie. It made me feel the feelings. Thank you for letting me, you know, dwell in nostalgia for a little while. I think it was well, ca- I think the cast did a great job. But uh, is there anything else you can think of you want to share? No, no, I just watch it again with my family. Yeah, it's it's easily watchable again. It's a fun movie. Now, I was kind of hoping for a Rick Moranis cameo and maybe some nods to the video game. But all in all, this was a perfect sequel. I th- there is a little bit of slowness at the very start, especially like, and this is another thing I thought they dwelled a little bit too too much on is like her discovering that Egon is her grandfather. They, tra- they tried to play this off as like a mystery for like almost the first half of the movie. Whereas as an audience member, 
you get it very early. <laughs> you already know, so it's just like... Well, you already know, and plus it's like, even when like she's starting to learn who it is, like it's very obvious that this is who this yeah. is. It kind of felt like a fresh start in the same way the 2019 Halloween sequel was just a sequel to the first movie, wasn't bogged down by too much continuity. So it's good to see the game's canon isn't in this one, uh, and then Vinkman and Dana actually settled down. Also, I do think it was sad that this film essentially made the video game no longer canon. Even though I'm still convinced that both Ghostbusters 2 and the video game are both canon, and no one can convince me otherwise. And and the events are of the first movie are known. Which is why I'm like, why is everybody so hesitant to believe this? Like, Because it, it, it's not like... Well, Paul Rudd's character, that teacher, he, he believed it pretty quick. Because it's not like... The, the events that happened in New York was, like, small. Like, that was big. Yeah, it was big. And also, I, I saw an article that said that the events of Ghostbusters 2 are considered canon as well. Well, the original Ghostbusters movie from 1984 managed to capture lightning in a bottle. I think Ghostbusters Afterlife managed to harness that same lightning to resurrect the franchise. And that's it. That is my review of Ghostbusters Afterlife. Thank you all for coming on this journey with us. But, uh, yeah, I can't think of anything else uh, to share as well. So, uh, this being the final entry, we've done... Um, First Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, 2016, the animated series, and the video game. So this being Afterlife, I guess quest complete. I want to thank everybody over there at the We Can Make This Work Probably podcast network for this amazing show. Uh, I've been honored to be a part of it for the last three film franchise entries, I think it has been. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. I'm probably going to take a break from here but uh, i don't want to say this will be my last and i hope that if you love ghostbusters as much as i do and some of us uh, on this podcast uh see if you can find your local franchise like go hang out go take pictures with people suited up in ghostbuster gear it's it's a whole lot of fun so i'm, I'm looking forward to uh coming back when uh, the the mood strikes me and i've got a little bit more time yeah let's just hope they can pull off a similar miracle with the upcoming matrix movie the Matrix Resurrections. But in any case, I look forward to hearing the next entries, the Matrix entries. But I look forward to, to keeping up with the show and, and all you wonderful podcasters out there. I hope that more podcasters will join the fray and throw in their two cents about whatever movies we're talking about. So, uh, uh, till we roll on into the next quest, be safe. Bye-bye. So, uh, good luck to you all and uh, I'll see you uh, in the future. Podcasters Assemble is a production of the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter and Instagram at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord page. Link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Intro written by Justin Aki. Music by Deft Stroke Sound. Voice over by a guy in a basement with three daughters who's just glad he's not on food stamps. This episode was edited by Eric Slater. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network.
Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. Oscar B now. 32, 33? Shit. That's, uh, I guess. In terms of favorite ghosts, we don't get a ton of choices here. Ghost. In terms of favorite ghosts, we. Oh my god, dogs. In terms of favorite ghosts, we don't get a ton of choices here. Yeah, whatever his sister. I can't remember what that scene was about. Well, that's because you went to the restroom oh. kind of around that time. And the best part is, that's not even all the Ghostbusters in Minnesota. Like, nobody realizes how many Ghostbusters are actually there in their immediate area. Because so many of them, unlike all of these other fandoms and cosplayers, so many people that put together proton packs or Ghostbuster costumes don't know about the larger community out there or aren't a part of the normal geek culture. They look at conventions and stuff and think it's all anime. It doesn't click to with them that Ghostbusters is absolutely a part of that. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! If you're all alone, pick up the phone and call. Ghostbusters! So when I say that we had 30 people, that doesn't include some of the members of the other Ghostbuster franchises here in Minnesota, uh, because we are the, the North Star Ghostbusters, and then we have members from a group called Ecto MX-5. Yeah, let's just hope they can pull off a similar miracle with the upcoming Matrix movie, The Matrix Revolution. The Matrix Resurrections. Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Mm, if you have a dose of a freaky ghost, baby, you'd better call Ghostbusters! Um. Uh, and then. <laughs> I thought it was a reinvigorating of the series without relying too much on the problem. Without relying too much on the problem. Without relying too much on the problem. Hey, you think it's coming, did you? <laughs> I ain't afraid no ghost. But man, there's the Minnesota Ghostbusters, Twin Cities Ghostbusters, uh, Ghostbusters North up by the Duluth area, the River City Ghostbusters that are further south from us. Like, And those people were all either not participating or doing their own events in their own areas of the state. So that 30 was just the people that happened to be in our group. Uh, and it was an absolute blast. You can go and, and find us on Facebook and uh, and see some really cool pictures. Uh, the other post credit scene was kind of Janine and um, and um, oh Eddie Hudson. Why, why can't I remember his character's name? Winston. Winston Zedmore. <laughs> you know, give us the the the. See, I'm always blanking on names when I don't look them up ahead of time.
There is no mob, only Zool. Podcasters, assemble. Come on, let's run some red lights. Bustin' makes me, bustin' makes me, bustin' makes me feel good. At last. Welcome, Neo. I am Morpheus. Let me tell you why you're here. The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? 